We're going to be, uh, if you would, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And while you're making your way to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, just by way of review, I want to remind you uh, kind of a little bit of what we went over last week. That the, 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 the book of 1 Timothy is part of something called the pastoral epistles. So Paul is writing to some pastors, specifically Timothy and Titus. Uh, 1 2 Timothy and the book of Titus are all what we call the pastoral epistles. And Paul is writing to Timothy here. Uh, who he left in charge of a church called Ephesus. And uh, the reason why he left him in, in charge of Ephesus was to do two things. Number one, there was some false teaching going on. And uh, so he was called to charge. Paul was saying, hey, you got, you got to stop this stuff that's going on. It's getting a little weird. And then secondly, after, first, uh, after he tells him to, to stop something, he also goes, you got to correct what's going on in the church because there's ramifications of what is being taught is being disseminated in the church and it's being manifested in their corporate gatherings when they're together. And so he has to redirect the church, not only correct, but redirect uh, the church back into godly, God-centered, God-ordained worship. And this was because there were leaders in positions who were not supposed to be in positions of leadership. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand the nature of the law and what it was to be used for, specifically the, the law of Moses there they were talking about. And, and, and what had happened instead, the teachers were leading people into vain discussions that were focused on genealogies and endless myths and all this kind of stuff. We don't really understand the total context of that, but we can kind of get an idea. Instead of just teaching the Word of God and bringing people in and, and teaching what Jesus says about loving and obeying Him, we can get off into all this weird stuff, and it's unprofitable, and it, continue, and, and it gets into this unending dialogue that really has no fruit about it. And the result of all these discussions and all these genealogies and all this myths and all this kind of false teaching was that you had a bunch of angry dudes in the church arguing with one another when they were gathering together over the stuff. And then you had the women who weren't focused on godly character, but they were focused on outward looks. And that was being manifested. And then you had women in leadership usurping them in the role of the man in the church to lead the church. And so it was just a mess. And so Paul has to come in here and go, okay, we got to stop the, the false teaching. And then Timothy, you got to redirect the church back onto the focus of loving and obeying Jesus Christ. So there's a bunch of stuff like that that was going on. And all that disorder was being manifested when they gathered together. And so instead of all you guys meeting and greeting one another and and shaking hands and telling you, you know, how you doing? How can I pray for you? Love you? All that stuff. You started debating, you know, between the Seahawks and the Chargers. We know the Chargers are their superior. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> Heretic. Oh, that's why I keep the big pulpit here. Yeah, okay. Just, we'll get to that verse in just a minute. <clears throat> You know, I'm joking with you, right? So as we open 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we look at verse 1, Paul starts to tell Timothy what needs to be changed. Listen, Paul, you got a bunch of turkeys who have been saying things. I've left you there to do a hard work. I know you're young, but you've got to be, I've, I'm, a, I'm an apostle. I've been charged by the Lord, and now I'm charging you. Be serious about this stuff. He says here, first of all, verse 1, then I urge, I exhort, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. With that, let's pray. Father, we come to you um, and we just confess right off the bat, Lord, that Lord, we're often more words than prayer. Um, and so we ask, Lord, that you would redirect our hearts. Let us, as your kids, hear the voice of your Spirit through your Word, that we would be changed and bring glory to you in the times that we live in, Lord. 
And so we just ask that you'd open our hearts to your word now. In the name of Jesus, amen. The first thing that Paul needs to correct in the church and in charges Timothy to do, he says, listen, you got to put the priority of prayer back in the church. Priority of prayer. And in, in, in place of vain discussion, Paul commands that Timothy recenter the church back on prayer. And, and the kind of prayer that Paul talks about here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, is evangelistic prayer. Praying for the lost world around you. Praying for all men. Praying for kings. You know, when the church gets off course, when it, when it loses focus of the main reason, one of the main reasons why God has redeemed us uh, we, it's to, is to preach the gospel to the world around us. When we get off course, we, we, we stop praying that way. We get focused on all this other stuff instead of being about our Father's business. Have, you, have anybody kind of like sensed that in the last two years that maybe you and your own personal walk have gotten off course? You forgot about the lost and you've got more focused on everything else going on? I mean, how can you not, right? It's impacting all of us. But in the midst of it, it also can be a lure for the enemy to pull us away from the primary call what God has called us to do. 1 Peter 2.9 I'm reminded of. Peter speaking to the churches, and he says there in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, but you, this is you who are believers, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God redeemed you to proclaim redemption. Isn't that amazing? He, this is his plan, to use the saved to go save. To go proclaim what God has done in you, you now proclaim to others. And both this goes two ways in this verse. One is to proclaim the excellencies of him. It's to proclaim to God in worship. And it's also to proclaim to others as a witness. So worship and witness, those two things. But the church is called to proclaim the excellencies of God. And we are charged to be engaged in this. We're not in charged to be engaged in endless discussions about other things that result in disorder, chapter 1. We're charged by our Father to be about the business of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and then loving and obeying him showing the fruits of repentance in our lives. And, and the Great Commission begins with evangelistic prayer. This is what Paul saw in the church. He said, man, they've got to get refocused on the mission. Let's pray for the lost again. Let's pray for the reason why we're here. There are people, we can argue and win ar arguments about stuff all day long, but in, in the end, so what if you win the argument and people go to hell? Amen? So we need to be about prayer. And so Paul begins with giving Timothy the instruction on how, the how of evangelistic prayer. How do I pray evangelistically? And he makes it pretty simple here. If you're taking notes, Paul says there in verse 1 that they were to pray through four ways, through supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Do you see that? This is how we're to pray for the lost. It's not obviously all-inclusive, but it gives us a simple outline to follow when we're praying for the lost. How many of you kind of have the word supplication there or entreaties or that kind of word in there? It's hard to, to understand some of these words, but the idea of supplication, let's just start with that one, has the idea of seeing what is lacking in someone or someone's needs that are lacking and praying to God that he would supply it. Supplication. That God would supply that need. Let me give you a little example from my own life. Um, I grew up in San Diego, thus the Charger reference. And sorry to my Raider friend over there. <laughs> Anyways, actually, I was thinking of, of coming home from, from a Charger game when I was a kid, and I'd be on the I-15. And those of you who didn't grow up around, like, highways, well, they're massive now. They've got eight lanes on one side and then eight lanes on the other. And you can imagine what, what rush hour looks like. Well, in, 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 in the hills of San Diego, there's canyons and things, and so you basically come to the top of one, and then there's a big, long slope down, and then it comes back up. And it, at night, when you're in a traffic jam and you're all stuck, you come over to the top and you're looking down, 
you just see a sea of red lights in front of you and a sea of white lights or whatever they are coming back to you on the other side. You know, and as you're sitting in traffic, as I'm sitting in traffic looking, and you just start to ponder. I remember being in my early 20s, just thinking, and it's stuck there, and just going, how many of these people know the Lord? As I look at the sower of the seed, that, you know, that, you know, we, you know, that's, that's, if you're just taking it literally, like a quarter of people just say whatever to Jesus. It's, it's actually more complicated than that, but. You know, most, the, the way to hell is wide and broad, and few go down it, you know, but the way, the way to the Lord is, is narrow, right? I think I got that backwards, but you understand the point? Sitting there in a stadium with 70,000 people all cheering for Tony Gwynn because he hits a double or something like that, and you just sit there and go, man, you know, what's heaven going to be like? Wow, it's going to be cool, but what about these people? And there's just this great need. How many of you see the great need? There's a great need. And you, and you know that you can't bridge that gap. And it's not even, you know, that's a massive need. But you have people around you that you love. And you know they need the Lord. There's just a gap in that life. And, and you know that it's only God who can make that need. And so you begin to pray that God would supply what they need. Because He's the one who has to intervene. He's the one who does it. And so supplication has that heart with it. When we're looking at a need and we say, God, supply that need. Supply what you gave to me. Supply the conviction of the Holy Spirit over my sin. Supply repentance. Supply faith. Supply misery around my life to direct me towards Jesus Christ. And so we pray this way, amen? Pray for supplication evangelistically. And then secondly, we are to pray also through prayers. You go, okay, through prayers. That's great. Yeah, you pray through prayers. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, you, you know, I get to sit around and figure out what this means. But it's, it's always a general term, and it's, it's not specific, it's, but it is, it's exclusive to God. You're praying to God. And the idea behind praying with prayers evangelistically is that you're praying to God Regarding his, and, and the idea is you're thinking of his holiness, his majesty, his grandeur, his character, his glory, all that he is. And you desire that that be magnified, that, that God come into sight, that his will would be done. And so when you're praying evangelistic, you're praying for his glory. You're praying that his will would be done, that, that God would be more seen, more known among people. Because ultimately what we're praying for, yes, we always think about it's their benefit. It is our benefit when we come to the Lord. Amen. But it's ultimately for what? For his glory. It's his good pleasure, we find out, of why he sent his son. It's, his, it's a, an overflowing of his heart why, he, why we're even able to be saved. That's his heart and it glorifies him when people come to his son. We pray that way. So we pray with not only supplications where people's needs are, but we pray with prayers that God would be glorified. Thirdly, we evangelize in prayer through intercession. And these are all kind of tightly fit, if you haven't noticed already. But intercession, in, it, it has, how many of you have the word petition? How many of you have you know, signed a petition? You've agreed or disagreed? You're trying to intercede. You're trying to come alongside a, a thought. But the idea there is to fall in line with someone. That's the idea of the word petition is to fall inside and the idea uh, uh, fall in line with someone. The idea of interceding with something, someone is to have empathy for them, to have compassion for them, to kind of put yourself in their place, in, in, in their shoes. It's not that you're agreeing with what is going on. It's that you can see how stuck they are or how broken they are or whatever it might, it might be. And how many of you as believers living your life looking back uh, you know, on your life, you realize how lost you've been. And now you look at these people you're praying for who you love that are around you or might be irritating or whatever it might be, and you go, man, I get it. Recently, I was just thinking about uh, someone, someone I know who doesn't really know the Lord, but they're trying to, um, they're trying to do things in a, in a mystical, weird way to protect their family. They love their family. They care about their family. You can see that it's there. But they have no power over the demonic things that are happening 
to their family and around them. And you just see the manifestation of the evil one in their life. And, and it just, it's just heartbreaking. As you see, it's, it's, like, it's like taking a wooden stick and smacking a tank. Nothing's going to happen. And so you intercede. You know, we have an example, a couple examples of this. Romans 8.26 is a great one of the Holy Spirit, of how he intercedes for us as believers. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what we ought to pray as we ought to. And so remember this when you're praying for the lost. You don't know how to pray as you ought to. But you've got someone who's interceding for you. The Holy Spirit's going to help you. And it says, for we don't know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with deep groanings. Or groanings too deep for words. There's a context there. I'm not going to teach through it here. But we see that the Holy Spirit intercedes. And the idea is that he has compassion and there's a connection. And it's not heartless. It's not mechanical. There's a, there's a heart behind it. And there's, a, there's an intercession. Hebrews 7.25 similarly, similarly speaks of Christ living to intercede for us. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for us. And so both of them are interceding, so to speak. God intercedes for us, and this is what we are to do as believers for the lost. We are to intercede for the lost, and for one another, by the way. Having compassion for one another, and empathy and understanding of lost conditions, and praying on their behalf to God, that he would intercede. Amen? And lastly, Paul says that we're to evangelize through thanksgiving for all men. Now, this, isn't, this doesn't have in mind thanking, people for, thanking God for, for people. I don't think that's what's in view in here. I think what, what's in mind here is, is that when we pray in all of this, we're praying in faith. We're praying with thanksgiving to God. You have access, bold access through the blood of Jesus Christ to God himself, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You can come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. You can bust in. You know that, right? That's your right in Christ. That's blood-bought access. And let me say, when we're interceding for the lost, we can run to our Father with thanksgiving, knowing that his will, that they would hear the gospel, knowing that he would intercede on their behalf, knowing that he wants to supply what they don't have. So we can run to him with great joy and with thankful hearts. And it's, it's powerful to know, like, you know, someone's smacking at a tank with a stick, but you've got the tank buster. You know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? And we're so thankful. And so we're told there in the first verse, that's only verse 1, how to pray. We're going to get very far today. <clears throat> and at the end of verse 1, I'm not even done with verse 1, and in verse 2, we're told who to pray for. Who, who, how are we, you know, who are we to pray for in this way? What does it say? Only the people you want to pray for. Only the people you like. Only the people that look like you. Only the people, you know, where you grew up. Only the people of your political persuasion. Only Charger fans. What does it say? What's God's heart? All people. All people, amen? We pray for all people. What does he say in verse 2? Who's that extend to? And for kings. And all who are in high positions. The reason why Paul is saying there, many believe that Paul's saying, why to pray for all peoples? Because there was exclusion going on in that day. The Judaizers who said only the people who keep the law can, can be saved. And the others, which would become the Gnostics on the, on the Gentiles, say only those with secret knowledge could be saved. And so you can see how their prayer scope just goes, Bing. oh, we're just going to pray for those law keepers. We're just going to pray for those Greeks with knowledge. No, pray for all people. Pray for all people. You know, we can do the same. We can exclude certain people and groups. Nowhere to pray evangelistically for all people. And verse 3 lets us know that this includes kings. That would be equivalent of our president and vice president, right? 
and all who are in, pri- in, in high positions, we're to pray for them too. Who would that be? Our governor or our senators or congressmen and women, all these, all these people, uh, our, our mayor, our police chief, our, you know, our fire chief, and everyone else who governs, people in high positions, we're to pray for them evangelistically. We're to pray for their salvation. We're to pray that they come to Jesus. They come to know him because what happens when that happens? Two things. First of all, it's for your benefit, for my benefit, that we may lead, it says there, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Isn't that what we want as Christians? I don't want to stir the dirt. I don't want to mess in everybody else's life. I just want to live a a peaceful, quiet, godly life. Yes, share the gospel and let that be the disruptor. But as far as everything else, man, I just want to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And here's the thing. When Jesus becomes Lord of a leader, they're submitted to a higher authority. They're accountable to a higher authority. And when Jesus becomes Lord of your life, you love him and you want to obey him. And so when you lead, you realize that you're going to be accountable to him and you also want to do what's pleasing to him. And so you make laws and actions that are a blessing to the people and are right and good and and holy and just and not for your own benefit and power and control and political persuasion. Again, Paul was living in a time when Nero was on the scene. Nero, as I told you before, was persecuting Christians to the place where he would take them, dip them in oil, put them on a pole, and light them to be the candles, uh, to be the lampposts in the streets. And so in, my, in this in mind, thinking of that kind of leadership that's going on, Paul's saying, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for kings. Pray for leaders. And we know that, uh, that according to Philippians 4, due to Paul's imprisonment in Rome, that many in Caesar's household came to the Lord. The many who were in his palace came to the Lord because Paul was chained to them and around them and shared the gospel with them. That's awesome. But I, I pray that the church, you know, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in these times. We need to pray for the salvation of our leaders. We need to pray. For our leaders, the way Paul lays it out here, that that will change things. That's the true impact that needs to happen. First of all, for our benefit, that we may live quiet and peaceful, godly lives and dignified in every way. But secondly, and more importantly, verse 3, why we want to pray this way? Because what? It is, this is good. It's right. It's morally right. Why is it morally right? It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is what God would have us do. This pleases the Lord when we pray in this way for all people, including our leaders. Amen. Why is it good and pleasing to God? Why is it good and pleasing that we pray for people in this way, for leaders and kings? Verse 4. Because God desires that what? All people, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When we pray for people evangelistically, for all men, including our leaders, right? Through supplications, through prayers, through intercession, and thanksgiving. This is according to the will of God because God desires to save people. That's his heart. He doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to come to repentance. And guess how people come to repentance? Through whom? Through Jesus. And through whom? Yeah, you, you, we're the plan. And so what's prayer to be about? Whose will be done? His will be done. So if the church is praying for his will to be done as we pray it, what are we going to be focused on? His will. We're going to start looking at people as opportunities for evangelism instead of opponents. Amen? And Paul, he can't help himself. He reminds us real quickly 
He, we know that God's desire is that all people come to repentance. But he wants to remind us of what we're preaching. He wants to remind us of the gospel. Remember, Paul reminds us quite often of what we already know. Same with John and the apostles. They wouldn't be good apostles if they didn't. Amen? So he says, verse 5, here's the gospel. What the gospel is. What it is that we're praying for. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Now this is not proof text that Jesus is not God. This is saying this is how God the Father uh, his plan, the, uh, God's plan of salvation is that the God sent his son. God, the father, who is spirit, sent his son who became what? Flesh. That's the point. There's one mediator between God and man. God became one of us, but without sin. He is the mediator between us and the father. Jesus said this over and over and over. We know that. Um, Jesus said he's the only way to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. By John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to what? The Father, to the Father except through me. There's one mediator between God and man. And the word mediator means go-between. There's only one person that's going to be able to to (laughs) broker a peace deal between you and God. And that's Jesus Christ, the son, not through Mary. Mary is not a mediator, not through a saint, not through the church, not through Pastor Matt, through Jesus Christ alone. He is the mediator. You come to the father through the person of Jesus Christ alone. And how did Jesus bring the way of peace between sinful man and the holy God? How did God make it so that you could have peace with God? It says it right there, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Jesus willingly went to the cross for sinners. Think about this. God has people who have rebelled against him, broken his law, or in darkness, want to have nothing to do with him. And he goes, you know what? I love them. I don't want to send them to hell ultimately. So I am going to send my son to die in their place for the sins they've committed against me because I am holy and just and I can't just let things slide. But I'm also love. And so I'm sending my son to die for the sins of all who would believe. So Jesus died a horrible death on the cross. He ransomed us out of sin, out of slavery, out of death, by his own blood, the innocent for the guilty. That's what happened. And it happened at just the right time, Paul says there. He's, Hebrews 4, 4, 4 echoes that as well. And so the very first order of the church, if you look at it, the very first thing Paul says is, man, you guys, Paul, Timothy, you, you have to redirect the church back onto what God's called them to, which is to pray for the lost. The redemption, the gospel, that's what we're about. Timothy, yeah, address the false teaching, command those who are doing that to stop that. But then also, Timothy, now here's, the, here's some things that need to be redirected. You've got to change the direction of the church back onto prayer. So, a shameless pitch. When do we have a prayer meeting next? Does anybody remember what we, we said? <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? Next Sunday night, the 24th, at what time? Seven o'clock. Great job. Hey, we're going to be praying tomorrow, uh, next Sunday night in here. What time? Seven o'clock. And guess what we're going to be praying for? All people. We're going to be praying for their salvation, just like the Lord said. So as much as we want to pray for our dogs and all that other stuff that's going on, no, we're going to focus on some high-priority stuff, and it's good for our hearts to do this. And let me tell you why. Well, I'll tell you why in a second. Paul goes off and explains the gospel, and he just says there in verse 7, for this, I was appointed a preacher, and I'm an apostle, and I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith. And Paul's just repeating his calling as he does several times because there was a lot of doubters who would be reading that. He says, listen, I was called to this, this priority of the gospel. 
But this is why it's important, church. We're going to get into to verses 8 through the end here. I'm going to do my best. Um, and so he's going to start instructing and correcting some things that are going wrong in the church. The general principle is pray. Pray, right? And then he begins here in verse verse 8 with the men. He starts getting specific about what's going wrong and what needs to happen with, with the different parts of the church. With the men particularly, he starts out in verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should what? Should pray. Lifting up holy hands without what? Anger or quarreling. Now again, Paul in chapter 1 had pointed out to Timothy the false teaching was going on. The leaders were leading people into speculation and into all this type of stuff instead of stewardship. So there was disorder instead of order that was going on. And so as a result of the wrong focus of the church by these uh, pseudo-teachers of the law, the men in the church were exhibiting flesh. They were being fleshy. What were they doing? They were angry and they were quarreling with one another. That's what was going on. And when we focus on the women here in just a second, and probably for most of the time, um, come on now, it's, it's more verses. We're going to see that, that this is not what is to be adorning the men. He says likewise. He says in the same way. And he talks about women and, and, and their external uh, focus instead of the internal focus. He says that's what you're clothing yourself with. with. Men, it's unfitting to clothe yourselves with anger and quarreling. It's not godly. And we know that. So Paul says here to the man, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to calculate my words. He says here to the men, listen, what your priority is supposed to be is not quarreling and anger. That's not what's supposed to be your clothing. It's not what's supposed to be manifested. What's supposed to be manifested? Lifting holy hands in prayer. Man, redeemed men are called to be men of prayer like Jesus. We're to pray. We're to be men of prayer. What's the one thing that's really hard for guys to do? Because we got to actually talk and express things like feelings. It's really easy to be angry and tell you what people don't like and all that stuff. But when it comes to seeking God and crying out and interceding and all these things, this is what God's calling us to, lifting up holy hands. The way that godly men get things resolved is not through anger and quarreling, I wrote down. It's through prayer. Now, we just read that we are to evangelistically pray for all men, for, for, kinds, for all kinds of people and for all kinds, all kings and high places. And I'm just going to get real kind of use a pull example of what's going on right now. But how many of us men have been more and more on the anger and quarreling side of the equation lately rather than the prayer side? Anybody else? Yeah, it's my shame too. And, and, you know, these are very trying times because, because of what's happening to so many of you is wrong. It's evil. It's not right. You know, to be coerced by government and by businesses or whatever into violating your conscience before God, that's evil. That's wrong. That's unjust. No matter what the reason for it is for. It's not right. But let me also say, that the way we deal with this reveals a whole lot about who we are, where our priorities are. Do we resort to anger and quarreling? Or are we men of prayer? Are we smacking a stick at a tank? Or are we going to our Father? I'm not saying we, we don't do practical things, but Man, it's so easy to, to act in the flesh, isn't it? You know, our, I'm just asking the guys, are, are you angry or ladies perhaps too? Do you find that anger is turning into bitterness? Or would you think that that might be a tactic of the enemy? Don't let a root of bitterness take hold and give the foothold to the enemy. Do you find yourself quarreling a little bit? 
I get it. But God has a better way, amen? A lot, it's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah. God has a better way. These men and women who are coercing you, who are willing to destroy your livelihoods, guess what they need? They need the gospel. They need Jesus. We need Jesus in our society. We need Christ. And we're called to pray, not return evil for evil. Right? It's unfitting to be angry and quarreling before God in these matters, but rather we need to go to our Father with supplication and prayer and intercession and thanksgiving. So, man, we've, we've got to repent of anger. And I'm just pulling one little just kind of hot-button issue out of the things they're answering. This is spread all over, so just take it to your own area of life. If you disagree with this on me, don't be angry and quarrel with me. Talk to me and pray. Don't cancel me. But this is just an example, right? We must adorn ourselves with fitting apparel as sons of God. Right? So pray. Pray. Lift up holy hands. Take up our concerns to the Lord. Find out what is heart, His will. Pray for what we perceive as something that's wrong. Ask the Lord. Maybe you're on the other side of this. You're praying the other way. That's cool. Pray too. Amen? Priority of prayer. Amen? Likewise, verse 9. Also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. You know, Paul's aim is to correct the false teaching that was going on in this church. The result of what was being taught was causing fleshly things to be focused on instead of what God calls us to do. That's what false teachers do. They focus you on your flesh and your rights and all this kind of stuff or whatever it might be. And, and they just get it to all be about you. This is why people can do that and say, you know, hey, pay for my Learjet because, you know, it will answer what you want and what you need. And they're appealing to this fallenness in each of us instead of the glory of God. And so Paul aims to correct the false teaching and the lack of discernment that's going on. And for the men, it was, it was leading to hearts and attitudes that were adorned with anger and quarreling in the church and as they gathered in various places, right? And for the women, they were fleshy too. And instead of being adorned with what is pleasing to God, godly character, right? Good works um, as, as his daughters. And he says modesty and self-control there. Instead of these, men, women had a prioritized appearance. That's what was going on. Have you ever noticed that men gravitate towards anger and quarreling and in our fallenness and women gravitate towards self-image? That's what happens. Not much has changed. Paul says the ladies of the church to be adorned with respectable apparel, fitting apparel, modesty and self-control. That's what's fitting as we gather together. Anger is not fitting and quarreling is not fitting for men when we gather to worship and we're with one another. Neither is an overemphasis on self-image. He says he defines it there in verse 9. Not with braided hair and gold or, or pearls or costly attire. And so the church gathering in, in Ephesus had devolved into the gathering of, of angry people bickering about things and endless discussions. And it had devolved in to the women having a fashion show, and it really wasn't just about just normal dress. It was about pearls and hair and all this time, the external stuff. It became a status show of how rich you were, and that's what was going on. There were really poor people in, in, in these places as well. And so, man, that is not the emphasis when we gather together. It's not about the bells and whistles. It's about hearts and pure hearts before God and love and His Word and the truth. Amen? And this was all unfitting peril before God. Men were, denying, uh, were to be denying their fleshly responses of anger and quarreling and lifting up holy hands. That's fitting. And women were to be denying their fleshly propensities towards an outward attention. But instead, verse 10, but with, uh, uh, with what is proper, this is what the women were to be doing, doing, Paul says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Do you, ladies, do you profess to be Christians? Do you press to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this day and age? 
both in this building and wherever you are. This is what you're to be adorned with, with godliness, with good works. That's to be the emphasis. What is honoring and glorifying and beautiful to God, what is fitting, ladies, is a life adorned with good works. That's proper and it's good. Men resist anger and quarreling and pray instead. Women resist vanity and clothe yourself with good works. These are the priorities before God, brothers and sisters. Now, Paul continues to to, uh, address the impact of what these false teachers had on the church. He has to continue to address and correct things that were going on there. And so Paul's just finished addressing the men. He starts to address the women, but there's a further issue that's going on with the women that he needs to address. And apparently in the congregation, through these false teachers, as they infiltrated the church, the leadership had began allowing women to take the position of teacher within the church. And I know this is going to go against everything that the the world is throwing at you right now. And I'm just telling you, the world doesn't know God. They're blind. And if you're going against his design and his roles for you, you're going you're gonna to be up. It's, it's going to be a miserable life. He's designed you as men. He's designed you as women. Women are not men. Men are not women. You were created in the image of God. We were created to complement one another and bring glory to God. What happens is when sin enters the church, we abandon what God has called us to be and called us to do, and we start doing things that we are not called to. And so Paul in verse 11, 12, he lays down the law, and then he comes back and explains what's going on here and why his reasoning before. 11 and 12, he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, how does that sit with you? And I say, amen. Not because I'm a better teacher than a woman. It has nothing to do with it. Now, we read this. I want to know a lot of things. Is Paul saying that women must be quiet in church? Is Paul saying that women can't teach scripture? Is Paul saying that women don't have the gift of teaching? Is Paul saying that women can't be leaders in the church? Is Paul from a different planet? (laughs) What's going on here? What's Paul saying here? Two important words to point out. Actually, several words, but two key words. How many of you focused on the quiet part? I want you to focus on two other words. Learn and teach. These are important words. Two more important words. Submissiveness, authority. And another word, quiet. Think about those. This is what Paul is teaching. There are learners, there are teachers. The teachers are speaking, the learners are quiet. What's happening right now? Are you teaching? No, I'm teaching. Are you teaching right back at me? Not right now. You're sitting submissively, all of us, men and women, and we're learning what God has to say. And you're processing as it goes, right? Amen. And so the issue facing the church in Ephesus was that God ordained, the God-ordained role of men as the spiritual leaders in the church was being usurped by women in the church who whatever was being taught there before Timothy got here. That's, that's what was going on. Paul lays down the principle there in verses 11 and 12. This was not right. The fact that women were taking the position of pastor or elder in the church, and that's what the teaching position of the church is. They were taking the position of the pastor and the elder in the church. He's saying, this is not right. This is not fitting. This is not good. This is not permitted by the Apostle Paul. I don't allow a woman to take that position, which is a position of authority, exercising authority over men. This is unfitting, and it's ungood. And he explains himself in just a second. And if you look at those verses, those important words, learner and teacher and submissive and authority, quiet and exercising, if you look at, look at it that way, you can see that there's a God-defined role for being a teacher in the church and 
one who exer- which is, means one who is exercising biblical authority. What I'm doing right now is I am exercising authority in the church. I am telling you what God is saying, and I'm telling you that you must obey him. My authority is not my own. It is God's word that you are to obey to, and it's my position within the church, not because of anything special about Matt, but because God has called through the elders for me to be here and to do this. And I meet qualifications, which guess which are in which chapter in Timothy? Chapter 3. Where's he going to? He's explaining why he's doing what he's doing. So real quickly, it's not just that men are allowed to teach in the church. It's qualified men in the church. That's chapter 3. Paul is saying, ladies, this is not your role. Do not usurp that position. Taking authority over teaching the men in the church, isn't, it isn't that you're not gifted teachers. It isn't that you're not able to do it and do it exactly how, you know, better than, than a guy, all that kind of stuff. This isn't about that. It's about roles. And our society does not understand roles too well. We do not. It isn't that you aren't gifted teachers or have the ability or any of that. This has nothing to do with the gifting of the Holy Spirit that he's given you. It has everything to do with the role that he's called you to. He's called me to and called men to and women to. Just as it would be unfitting for mothers to be fathers and fathers to be mothers, it is not the role of women to exercise authority over men in the church regarding church doctrine and all that stuff. Women are gifted by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I have to back up and do tons of qualifiers here. Just because they are not in charge of the leadership of the church in the pastor and elder position does not mean that they don't have every other avenue available of ministry and all these types of things in the church. We see this. In the gift, women are gifted by the Holy Spirit in the areas of teaching in the areas of leadership and speaking and gifts and exhortation and all these types of things in the body of Christ. And they are essential for the maturation, the maturity of the body. We're one. We need each other. It's not happening without this. We don't want to minimize the importance and the role of women in the church. That is not godly. But I tell you what, to go against what God designed the church. That is not godly either. And we're blessed to have women like Carol call you out, <laughs> Judy and Ramey teaching women's Bible studies through the week, and Betty who's listening online. Amen. Leading godly women, teaching them, older women teaching younger, younger, younger women. We need that. We have women's Ministries going on at the Christian Aid Center where godly women are leading other women. Susie, I know you're part of that. Other women as well. We have women who are involved with evangelistic works or other things. They have women that are teaching the kids and in the, uh, the children's ministry. I mean, ladies doing announcements and prayer and all this type of stuff. We are we're thankful. You know, Timothy. Paul's talking to Timothy here. Guess what he says to Timothy? Later on, he says, man, you continue in the word. And guess who taught Timothy the word? As a young child, who taught it? His dad? His dad was gone. His mom and his grandma are the ones who brought Timothy to faith in the Lord. This is what Paul's driving at, by the way. But to go against what God has clearly laid out, like what was happening at Ephesus, that's sin. And Paul addresses it. When it comes to the teaching of men in the church as we are gathered together, Paul makes it clear that there's a fitting place and role for the women of the church to teach. And, and, and it is not in, in this position of the church. It's not as an elder of the church. It's interesting as you look at scriptures, you see examples where these things do happen. I think of Priscilla and Aquila. Here's Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and a wife. And what does it say that they both did? They taught a pastor. <laughs> like, here is Apollos, and, he, and he's, he's, he's preaching the word. 
but he doesn't have full knowledge of what's going on. So this husband and wife team come alongside of Paul and he's they taught him the way of the word more clearly. So he understood what was going on. And so this is important to know that, yes, women have a place in the church to teach and all those types of things, but God has ordained this. And Paul explains why. He explains why here. What's his thinking? Paul tells us he doesn't permit a woman to exercise authority over a man in the church. And then he tells us why, verse 13, for Adam was formed first. And then me. He goes back to the, ordain, the beginning of creation, God's design for men and women. Reason number one, God ordained men to have authority in the church is that the God ordained or, uh, order of creation. Adam was created first, and then Eve. God was created to, to do, he was under the headship of God, and then woman was created for man to be her helpmate. And that's how it works. Now, how many of you have kind of thought this, this verse and said, hey, now we're in the new covenant and we're all equal in Christ? Right? Galatians chapter 4, right? This is what my charismatic friends would, would say to, to say, no, we can have women pastors. We do all this stuff. They go, hey, man, we're all equal in Christ. Well, guess what? The same guy who wrote that wrote this after. So he doesn't mean that. <laughs> he means this. He's talking about unity in Christ, how the divisions and the walls and the things and how we are all brought and made one in Christ. But he's not talking about now all the roles are gone. No, that is not what he's talking about. God ordains, well, he ordained Adam was made first and then Eve. And so Paul was speaking about unity in Galatians, but Paul is saying that the reason may not exercise women may not exercise authority, teach men in the church is that the man was created first. The role of Adam from the offset was that he had the role of authority. And if you go outside of those purposes that God gave us, it invites trouble, which brings us to Paul's second point. Secondly, Paul says in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. When Eve left the headship of Adam, she fell into sin. That's what happened. She fell into deception. Just as when men leave the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, we fall into deception. And we lead our families into all kinds of chaos and, and things. When women lead the headship of their husband, they fall into all kinds of things. It's way we were designed. I was designed to submit to God. And to, and to lovingly lay down my life for my wife that she might live. That's where I'm called to. And, she, and, and Christine was called to support me and to help me fulfill the will of God. It's this complementarianism. When you look at this as, the, as, as an image of Christ, and this is what the ultimate thing is. You look at Christ, the Son and the Father. They are equal. They are God. And yet one is submitted to the other. Isn't that weird? They're God, and we can't get beyond our, no, I want the same rights, the same this or that. No, they are equal, but they have different roles. And it's beautiful how it works, that the Father sent the Son, and the Son does the will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit testifies to the Son, and the Son testifies to the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. It's this relationship of giving and glorifying and what is best for the other person. That's what's supposed to be going on there. But when Eve left the headship of Adam, she fell into deception. Again, just as men, when we leave the headship of the Lord, we fall into deception. And it's the way God designed us, to be submitted to one another. This is submitted to God. And, and marriage is that ultimate example, where Jesus is the head of, of, the, of the man. Right? Yep. It says there in uh, you know, Ephesians 5 that Jesus is the head of, of, of the man, right? He's the head of the family, so to speak. Oh, he says he's, he's the headship over the man, and then the man is the head of the house, and the wife is submitted to her husband, and the kids are submitted to the parents. And the idea is that the head is there with his authority to protect and to teach and to lay down his life for others that they might live. That's the idea, servant leadership. But when we go outside of God ordains God's ordained rules, we, we invite destruction. 
Eve left the headship of Adam and she fell into deception. And now we hear nothing of this in Paul's other writings. Who do we attribute the fall to? Adam. Who's the one who was deceived? Who gets blamed? The one who's in charge. The head. It's because Adam, he was head and he left his head. And who did he follow? He followed his wife. It's all messed up. And now we have the war of the sexes. And that's Paul's point. Eve isn't to lead. The Lord is through Adam. And this is Paul's thinking in the church. This is the order that God has ordained for his church. Godly men who are submitted to God, who are qualified and called to exercise authority of the church, that is to teach the word of God. And when we leave that model, we invite all kinds of issues into the church. We already have tons of issues apart from this, don't we? <laughs> now, if that hasn't been controversial enough, verse 15. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let us pray and have an offering. <laughs> It'll be light. Paul isn't speaking about being saved from sin. He's talking about being saved from the stigma of the fall because he just said, listen, it was Eve who was deceived. You brought the world into all this stuff. How in the world is she going to live down the stigma? She's not supposed to be leader and all this kind of good stuff. And she took her place that she shouldn't. How is she going to live down that stigma of the fall? You know, if it was Eve who led the world into sin through her deception, how, how on earth are women going to ever going to live that down? This is Paul's thinking. This is Paul's angle, always looking for God's redemption. He says there in verse 15, yet she's going to be saved through childbearing. What does that mean? Just having kids? What is childbearing? Just having kids or the raising of kids? Yes, the raising of kids, right? If they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Listen, the way women glorify God in all of this is to lean into the role that God has created you for. That's it. To raise a godly family. Now I realize that not all women are called to be married. Not all women to call, are called to have kids. That's, that's, that's without said, right? That's an outlier there. But just look at our culture. Look at how it's plummeted. And what we desperately need are godly mothers. We know godly fathers. That's, that's a whole different sermon. But we need godly mothers raising up a godly generation of kids. Day in, day out, morning and evening, year after year, not shopped out to someone else. You. Godly women, what are you doing there? Teaching. You're exercising authority. You're molding and shaping humanity. Teaching your kids how to love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. As much as that should be directed by and prioritized by dad, it is the mom who is usually the master teacher. And all the moms said, amen. I know many of you have come to me, and I'm just going to boast for a second. You know, I'm not saying my kids aren't without fault, but you talk about the quality of my kids. Man, my kids are awesome. They have characters. There's something different about them. I know. That's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Praise God, they have a godly mother. That's Christine. That's the Lord. You're in, you're out. Just with them. And they're going to make mistakes. That's, that's my wife. Loves the Lord. He, she's brilliant. Dad was a nuclear physicist. She's got a mind on her. That's, I'm... I'm And yet she decided that it was more important for her to be a mom 
devoted mom with her kids and all the things she can do. And now, listen, I'm not, you pray and you do that before the Lord. What I'm saying is that the life that she's given up and the things she's done is because of what God has called her to, to be a mom. It's this verse. It's lived out. Yet they will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Raising a generation of godly people who are going to impact this world for a time such as this. I'm telling you, the world is, it's telling you what its design is for you, women. It's telling you how you're to look, what is success, what is all these things. Don't bite. Go to your father, the one who made you, who called you, who designed you, who called you to be what he's called you in this life and in this kingdom. And let me tell you what, the way up is not up. It's what? It's down. Satan is the usurper. Satan is the one who desires position and power and authority and be on the top to put his name in light. Jesus is the one who came to give. You'll never find peace in worldly wisdom because God didn't create you to throw off what he designed you to be. Daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Godly and holy character radiating from your being. Satan's concerned primarily with the exterior and what things look on the outside. He's a radiant angel on the outside. You'd look at him as a minister of light. But what's inside? Darkness and corruption. No wonder the, his messaging to all of you is the emphasis on the outside. And in men's fallenness, we, re, we reinforce all that. Listen to the voice of your father. He's created you beautifully and wonderfully for his glory. Focus on your godly character before your Lord. The things that are truly beautiful. I'll read you the verses that God gave me as I was, my heart was concerned with finding a godly wife when I was young. Let me read 1 Peter 3.16, right before I met Christine. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, how are you going to witness to them? How are they going to come to the Lord? That they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. The powerful preaching of the word through your conduct, ladies. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, that's how they're won. Verse 3, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let this happen. But let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, the imperishable, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Ladies, you're precious in the sight of God. And the leadership of this church loves you. And we love you and we praise God for each of you. So please continue to pray for us and, and for the men of the church that we may be men of prayer, <laughs> men not of anger and quarreling, but that we would use any position that God would grant us to serve and to lay down our lives that others might live. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I, I know this was uh, it's hard to hear in this day and age. I pray that, Father, you would settle issues and, and bring
bring up questions, God, in, in the hearts of this church, Lord. That ultimately, we would love, we'd all be loving and, and, and submitted to you. That you teach us how to live and we wouldn't take our cues from the world. That we wouldn't be living our lives to the beat of what our culture says. But we want to be kids of the kingdom. And Lord Jesus, you used your authority to go and serve and lay down your life for others. And we are the bride of Christ submitted to you. And it's so good that all the weight is on your shoulders. And we just want to lean into that. And I pray, Lord, that we would lean into each other in our giftings and our callings and our roles. And that as we do, we would function as the body, as you've called us to do, that the arm wouldn't be in the place of the leg and the leg would be misplaced, but that you would be our head, you'd be our heart, and that we'd follow you in this dark time. And that what would result from all this is love. Love for one another and submission to one another. And ultimately to you. Help us to pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.